Good morning, Noblesville. How are we doing today? It's good to be here. Lots of familiar faces. Saw many of you uh, a few weeks back at our outdoor service, but always good to be here uh, in Noblesville. Uh, If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the easiest chapter in all of Scripture to find, Genesis chapter 1. We're Today we're continuing this series called Sticky Stories, and today we're going to look at the original Sticky Story, and the reason we're calling this Sticky Stories is because these stories tend to stick with us uh, in the lessons that we learn in them. They're familiar, you've heard them or you've heard of them before, and so we're going to jump into one today, Um, and when you came in, hopefully you received one of these stickers. We want you to take these stickers and put them on a water bottle, put them on a computer somewhere that will remind you of the lesson that we're learning today, and this is today's sticker, and you're thinking, a foot and a snake We'll get there, I promise, okay? Just give me a moment. But let's, first of all, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have revealed the truth of your word to us. So would you help us today to learn, but not just to learn, to apply, to apply these things to our life, to take a story that's familiar, we've heard or we've heard of, and let it stick with us. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you teach us about the nature of God today? and who Jesus is and why he has come to save us and rescue us. Would you help us today as we jump in? Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, but help us to leave here on mission with you, Jesus. That's our prayer. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we'll get into scripture in just a moment. But first, I want to share something with you. Uh, How many of you are really good about tracking the news. Like you have a good podcast or like, I don't, I I don't know where to go to get news that I trust. And honestly, when I go to look for news, it's all bad. (laughs) Everything's bad or scary or sad. But I came across a news story recently that honestly, it disturbed me. And I want to share it with you this morning, but I want you to see it. I want to see if it disturbs you the way that it disturbed me. So here's the headline that I saw. Now, what's scarier, the menacing picture of the cobra or the headline itself, right? I am not a snake person in that picture. Like, I can't look at it too long because I won't sleep tonight, right? But here's the story behind the picture. Back in April, a pilot from South Africa gets on his little plane with four other people. They take off. Shortly after taking off, he reported feeling something cold slide across his side. He looks down and he sees the head of a fairly large Cape Cobra. And then he saw it go underneath his seat. Now, Cobras are dangerous, right? If you'll look Right underneath the picture, it says, file, Cape Cobra snakes are dangerously venomous. No kidding, it's a cobra, right? Thank you for that little note. So now, imagine you're the pilot. You've seen this snake. It's touched you, and it's under your seat. What do you do? Well, after a few moments of stunned silence, this pilot decides to tell the four people with him on his little bitty plane, guys, we have a problem. There's a cobra on board. What do you do? Okay, so they decide to make an emergency landing, and they land, and everybody has to get off the plane without startling this snake that's hiding somewhere. Now, imagine you're the pilot. How do you get off if it's under your seat? I don't know if it's best just to sit there. Do you move slow? I don't know, but everybody got off the plane, but that's not the end of the story. For two days, they searched this plane high and low. Guess how many snakes they found? Zero. It's still hiding in there somewhere. So now the pilot has to get back on all by himself and fly at 90 miles home to his home hangar. But this time he takes some precautions. He takes his seat and he wraps it in a heavy blanket. He puts on a heavy winter coat. And next to him, he has a fire extinguisher, insect repellent, and a golf club. Just in case. You know, like one of those three should do the job, but you still have to get up in the air, right? Now, I do not like snakes. 
I love nature, but I'm going to do all that I can to avoid being in the presence of a snake. And I can't think of a worse place to find a snake outside of a small cockpit in a little bitty plane a couple hundred feet in the air, right? Terrifying. Well, today we're going to look at a sticky story in the book of Genesis. And it doesn't involve a snake, but it does involve a serpent. And not just any serpent, but a talking serpent. And this talking serpent somehow managed to mislead, to tempt the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, into rebelling against God. And here's what makes this story so sticky. That's how sin and death entered into our world. And I realize if you trust scripture, you're like, okay, I know this story. But if you don't, you're like, this just sounds like a fairy tale. Talking, talking serpents, well, maybe God has something for us in this that he wants us to learn so we, we can learn to trust his, his word. But here's a question. How many of you have ever read this story and thought, where did that serpent come from? Where did that talking serpent come from and why is he in the, nobody's ever wondered that. Okay, cool. You guys already have the answers. Cool. I've wondered, why is there a talking serpent and where, where does he come from? Well, we're, I'm going to try to help you answer that question and to understand how it ties into God's bigger story. But in order to do that, that story is found in Genesis chapter three. I want to start in Genesis one and connect some dots to get us to where we're going. So Genesis chapter one, the first chapter in scripture is a poetic account of how God spoke all of the universe, everything, everywhere into existence. If God said it, it happened. So he's speaking, let there be light, let there be stars, let there be sun, let there be moon. But at the end of Genesis one, we see God's greatest creation, man and woman in his image and likeness. Human beings are more like God than anything else in all creation. That's how the creation story of Genesis one ends. Now you go to Genesis chapter 2. It's another account of the creation story, but this one's a little more personal. It tells about God and his relationship with mankind created in his image and his likeness. And so here, here's a quick version of the story. At the beginning of Genesis 2, God creates the man Adam from the dust of the earth. And then he breathes life and he becomes a living being. That's the beginning of Genesis 2. By the end of Genesis 2, God did something that all the men in this room should say, amen. He created woman to be a companion and helper because he knew by ourselves, we're in trouble. We need all the help that we can get. So at the beginning, he creates man. By the end, he creates woman. But in between the creation of man and woman, God gave the man, Adam, some very specific instructions that he wanted him to know. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, we read this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we're in this perfect garden and there's lots of trees, lots of trees, but there's two trees in particular that are mentioned by name. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man. Now, this is the part that tends to stick with us. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Perfect garden, lots of trees, two trees. God says, of all the trees you can eat from, eat them all. Don't eat from this one, because if you eat of it, you will certainly die. Question, is God threatening to kill Adam? Does he say, if you eat of it, so help me me, I am going to kill you. That's not what he says. He warns Adam. This is a warning. You can eat from any tree you want, but the moment you eat from that tree, you're going to die, Adam. I want to protect you. Okay, so he's warning him. That's so important. Not threatening, warning. But there's another warning hidden in this verse. Go back to verse 15. 
the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now, in the original ancient Hebrew, the word or the phrase take care of comes from the Hebrew word shamir, shamir. And this can be translated as to take care of, but it can also be translated as to guard. Elsewhere in scripture, it means to guard. So this brings up a really good question. Who or what was Adam going to guard this garden from? Good question, right? Have you ever thought of it that way? Interesting question. Now that leads us into Genesis chapter 3. By the way, this garden had been created perfectly and personally by God so that Adam and Eve and all humanity could enjoy the presence of God. Take care of it, protect it, guard it. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, so back to our original question. Where on earth does this talking serpent come from? Well, it probably helps us to know that this serpent didn't start as a serpent and he didn't start on earth. He came from a different place. Throughout scripture, you know this, this serpent has a couple of names, or actually they're not names, they're titles that are assigned to him. The devil or Satan, right? Formally, we, we like to call him Satan. Now the name devil or the, the title devil means slanderer, someone that says bad things about other people. Or Satan means adversary. So this tells us about his character as the enemy of God, but it still doesn't answer the question, where did he come from? And so to answer this question, where did he come from? We're going to look at some passages from the Old Testament that give us Satan's backstory. But here's what I want to tell you before we get into all of that. Here's what you need to know. Satan is actually an angel that God had created, but not to be bad, to be good. And his name isn't, wasn't originally Satan, it's Lucifer. And God wanted good things for him. So where did things go wrong? Well, that's, where, that's the story that we're going to look at. But think about this. At, at some point in eternity past, in Genesis chapter 1, when God is speaking everything into existence, at some point he created a race of angels. Angels are as perfect and as holy as any created being can be. They're powerful. They're beautiful. They're wise. But they're created beings, which means they're limited in knowledge in power, and their ultimate mission is to do the tasks that God assigns them. God gives them tasks, and that's what they do. And throughout Scripture, we learn that, they ha- that God created angels for a few specific purposes. First and foremost, they have been created to worship God. If you read in the book of Job, I think it's towards the end, God asks Job, he says, where were you when the angels sang my praise when I was speaking creation into existence? They're created to worship God, but they were also created by God to protect God's people. Think of the examples in scripture where we see angels coming to protect God's people. They are also uh, been created to provide for God's people. Think of Jesus's life. He went into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that fast, God sends an angel to tend to his needs. Or in the garden of Gethsemane, right before he's arrested, he's praying and he's sweating drops of blood. And God sent an angel to encourage Jesus. So they protect God's people, they provide for God's people. And think of how often we see angels appearing and they're proclaiming the word of God to a human. And that's pretty fascinating when you stop to think about it because this is what Lucifer was created to be. This is what he was created to do. But at some point along the way, this powerful, beautiful, wise angel 
named Lucifer, decided that he was going to rebel. And he led a rebellion in heaven. Revelation tells us he managed to lead one-third of all the rest of the angels in rebelling against God. We're talking about a really powerful being. Now, to learn his backstory, we're going to go to two passages of Scripture, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. We're going to go to Ezekiel first. Ezekiel was written about 2,600 years ago in the year 600, around the year 600 BC. And if you were to go read Ezekiel 28 today, it, it appears that God is giving his divine judgment to a man named the king of Tyre. Now, Tyre is a region, a kingdom in the Old Testament, and it looks like God's speaking to a man, but really what we're going to see is God is speaking to the man, but he's also speaking to the evil spiritual power behind that man. Let me show you what, we, what I mean. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me. Me is Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Your settings and your mountings were made of gold on the day that you were created. They were prepared. Now we have a, a really important hint here. Where's this conversation taking place? In Eden. You were with Eden in the garden of God. There were only so many beings that were allowed to be in Eden. And we're talking about a created being, created in perfection and adorned in beauty by God himself. Verse 14, you were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. Now that phrase, a, a guardian cherub, tells us that we're talking about an angelic being. Now if I were to ask you to picture in your mind what a cherub looks like, what image comes to your mind? I asked this to our small group two weeks ago, and we all collectively agreed when we think of cherubs, we think of fat angel babies. They're, they're naked. They're sitting on a cloud and they're playing a harp. I don't know where that image came from. That's what we think. I don't think it's accurate. Cherubs or cherubim throughout the Old Testament, they actually guard the presence of God. I'm going to give you two examples. This first one should look, look familiar. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, you're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, right? This is what we believed it looks like. It's a golden box that housed the Ten Commandments and other articles. And do you see those two angels on top? Those are cherubim. They're guarding the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. If you touch the Ark of the Covenant, you would die. It's a holy article. So this is what cherubim look like. This is what they do. If you go to the end of Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin against God, they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, not because God's a jerk, but because he's holy, and now they're not. And so he places two cherubim at the entrance to the garden, guarding the, protect, or guarding the presence of God. So what we learn from Ezekiel 28 is that Lucifer started out as one of these guardian cherubs, but something changed in his heart. Look at verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God. I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Verse 17, your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and I made a spectacle of you before kings. Now that's really interesting, isn't it? We've got this angel named Lucifer who was created to be beautiful and powerful, but all that went to his head. He had a pride issue. And where did his pride land him? He was thrown from heaven down to earth. Now let's look at Isaiah chapter 14. 
Very similar account of Satan's backstory. Now, Isaiah was written 2,700 years ago, around the year 700 BC, and it reads like divine judgment against the king of Babylon. But remember, it's God's divine judgment against the man, the king of Babylon, but also behind the evil spiritual power that's leading him. Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nation. So just like in Ezekiel, we have this being, this creature that was started in heaven and he's cast down to the earth. But I want you to pay attention to that phrase morning star in Latin. It's the word Lucifer. So if you've ever wondered, well, why would he be referred to as Lucifer? It comes from this passage. Lucifer, morning star, son of the dawn. But at some point, all of that power, all of that, all of the beauty, it all went to his head. Look at verse 13. You said in your heart, now pay attention, he's going to say five, Lucifer's going to think or say five things and none of them are good. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That phrase stars of God elsewhere in scripture is used to describe the angels. So now this particular angel is saying, I want to be better than all the other angels. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. And listen to number five, I will make myself like the most high, but you're brought down from the realm of the dead to the, pit, to the depths of the pit. In those five I will statements, what, what is Lucifer doing? He's trying to climb a ladder where he makes himself better than everyone else. But his most damning statement is number five, I will make myself like the most high. Did you notice that most high is capitalized? We're talking about God, the creator. The creation is saying, oh, I'm going to be like you. That job's already filled. There's only one creator. He doesn't, there's no one else like him anywhere. Now, um, this, this leads to a point, but I need your help making this point. We're going to play a game called the opposite game, okay? And I'm going to say a word, and you're going to say the opposite back to me. You guys can do this. The first couple rhyme. That's a hint, okay? So here's the first word. If I say day, you say, okay? If I say black, you say, okay? This, this section is doing really good. You guys, not so much. When I say dark, you say, when I say dog, you say, if I say wet, you say, if I say God, you say, oh, really? He wants us, that's what he wants us to think. See, Satan wants us to think that he's God's equal and opposite. If there's good, there's evil. But here's the thing. It's not like this. It's like this. God's up here. Satan's down here. If, if Lucifer or Satan had an equal, it would be Michael the archangel, but it certainly isn't God most high. Do you see what he's doing? He, he tricks us into thinking that he has more power than he actually has. There's only one most high, and the most high cast his creation that had become proud down to the earth. God has no equals. Now, that's a lot to take in, but let's take all that information, and now let's plug it back into Genesis chapter 2. God creates the man, breathes life into him, and says, now I want you to guard and to protect this garden. Well, now we know who he's protecting the garden from. There's an evil fallen angel that is looking to corrupt and ruin God's perfect creation. He wants to destroy man and woman that, that have been created in the image of God. And it's easy for us to, to think, well, that's just not fair though. Adam and Eve are going to go up against this powerful spiritual being. He is powerful. But think about what we know about Adam and Eve. 
created to be more like God than anything else in all creation, created in the image and likeness in God. And God had given them the truth and the authority of his word. This is what is true. You can trust me. If you do this, you will live. If you disobey this, you will die. He spilled everything out. Then God empowered them to protect the garden. And in his love, God allowed them to make their own decisions. All of that is God saying, I've created you to rule in my place. Look at what happens. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see what he's doing? He's doubting God's word. Because did God say they couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? God says you can eat from any tree, just don't eat from this one particular tree. But Satan likes to doubt God's word. He likes to plant little seeds of doubt. So what he's going to say to us is, did God really say, there was, I heard there was a meeting and I wasn't invited. My Wi-Fi was down. I didn't get on the Zoom call. Did God really say that? Did God really say that men are men and women are women or should we debate that? Did God really spell out safe boundaries for sexual behavior or should you just be able to do whatever you want? I mean, did God say that? Is that revealed in his word? Did God really say that life is valuable or should you be able to, to take out whatever punishment you want against people that you don't like. Did God really say, my guess is he's whispering to all of us right now, did God really say you fill in the blank? So he doubts God's word. And look at Eve's response, verse two. The woman said to the serpent, oh, we can eat fruit from any trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Good job, Eve. So far she's doing great. She's quoting God's word back to Satan. But then she does this. And you must not touch it or you will die. Did God say they couldn't touch it? It's not what he said. I mean, as far as we know, they could have climbed that tree. They could have put a swing on the tree. You just don't eat the fruit from the tree. When you add a rule where God hasn't added a rule or a limitation, this is known as legalism, and it's really dangerous. In fact, I'm going to guess that many of us have been a part of a church or we know Christians that like to say, well, it's Jesus plus something. You have to dress this way. Do this, don't do that. And we, we think it's a good thing, but really it does not draw us closer to God. It pulls us further away and it gives Satan room to work. And so look at what Satan does. Oh, you're not gonna die? You're not gonna die? The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He is talking to a being that's more like God than any other being on the planet and he wanted himself to be like God, and now he knows if I can tempt you, you can be more like me instead of God. And Eve takes the bait. He, he doubts God's judgment. Oh, you're not going to die. He's not going to kill you. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have this relationship. He wants to lord it over you. Girl, you go do what you do. Be happy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it, and then she gave some to her poor, helpless husband who was standing there. Yeah, it doesn't say that. It should say she gave some to that dumb man standing there. It was like, okay, honey, whatever you want to do. All he had to do was say, whoa, 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 time out. This isn't what we're supposed to do. They took the bait. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were open. And they realized they were naked. Now pay attention to what happens. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. They made their own clothes. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God. That had never happened before. Sin had damaged their relationship with God. But the Lord God called out to man, where are you? God goes and looks for them. This is, a, this is a pattern in scripture. We sin, we hide, we try to cover it up, and God comes looking for us. But here's, in the end, here's what happened. Adam and Eve willingly, willingly traded the wisdom of God for the logic of Satan. The wisdom of God is to obey and to do what he tells us is best but the logic of Satan is, ah, you can figure this out. You do, you do your thing on your own. And the problem is, this is where the story gets sticky. Sin and death entered into God's perfect creation. So if you've ever wondered, man, why does the world work the way that it does? Why is death a thing? Why are people so wicked? It's because we've invited sin into the world. And you might think, if I were there, I would have not had... I would have not have done that. Well, the Apostle Paul feels very differently. He says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've, we've had the same option. We just have not exercised it. And because of that, the penalty that we deserve, just like Adam and Eve, is death. But not just physical death. Spiritual death and separation from God for all eternity. And it seems like at this point in time, Satan has won. He's ruined God's creation Adam and Eve are going to be banished from God's presence. It looks like he's one, but God in his goodness shows up and he shares his plan of salvation for the very first time. He shares the gospel for the very first time. But here's what you need to know. If you read through Genesis 3, after this happened, God shows up and he begins cursing. He doesn't start cursing like some of us do when we lose our cool. He says, okay, because sin has entered into the world, things are cursed. The ground is cursed. Work is cursed. The man is cursed. The woman is cursed. Ladies, childbirth is cursed. But he begins by cursing the serpent. Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now this next verse, verse 15, is the most important verse in all of Genesis chapter 3. I think it's one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. I'm going to put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then pay attention to this word. This is an important word. He. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here's why that word he is so important. It is not plural. It's singular as in one. It is not feminine. It is masculine. In other words, at some point in the future, a singular he will show up to destroy you. What God is saying is, I have a plan of salvation. I will send a Messiah who will come, and he will completely destroy you. He will defeat you. If you look back at the phrasing, God says, you will strike his heel. You will hurt him, but he will kill you. Well, ultimately, the way that he is hurt is he comes into the world to taste death on our behalf. And when he rose from the dead, he crushed the power of sin and death and Satan. And if you don't know who the he is, all throughout the Old Testament, the question is, who is he? When's he going to be here? What's he going to be like? Surely it was Noah, right? God chose to save his family. Well, Noah, after he gets off the ark, he gets drunk and he dies. Surely it was Moses, right? Well, Moses lost his cool and he died. Oh, it had to be David. Surely David was the Messiah. He was wise. He was rich. No, he kind of blew it too and he died. 
But the Gospels tell us that eventually he arrived in the form of Jesus. He entered into the creation that he had created to be one of us, to be like us in every way, to take the death that we deserve so that in his death, burial, and resurrection, all things could be restored. That's why we've got this image for this week. That's what makes this story so sticky. It is the first declaration of the gospel. Now, do you remember what God said would happen when when Adam and Eve sinned against him? You will die. And what did Adam and Eve do when they actually sinned? What did they do? They made clothing of leaves and they hid from God's presence. Question, if you were to go home today and make clothing out of leaves, that's all you could wear for the week, how long are they going to last you? How comfortable are they going to be? They're going to disintegrate and you're going to have to replace them over and over and over again. I want you to see what God does for Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.21, at the end of all of this, it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Where do you get garments made of skin? Something else had to die. Blood was shed, and then God says, this is a better covering that I have made for you. You couldn't make it for yourself. I've made it for you. Do you see the picture? Have you ever wondered why there's all this animal sacrifice in the Old Testament? Like, what is up with that? This is God's way of teaching people, when you sin, sin leads to death, but I will send someone who will shed his blood and die in your place, and his work will cover you. You can't cover your sins on your own. It is a picture of what Jesus ultimately would come to do for us as the Lamb of God. Isn't that amazing? When sin enters, God says, I've got a plan. I'm going to send a he. No one would have ever anticipated it would be God in the flesh. Now, if you read through to the end of Genesis 3, here's what you discover. At this point, God has to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden, not because he's an evil, mean landlord, but because they were sinful. He is holy. And he places the cherubim there to guard his presence. And from that point on, everyone is waiting for the Messiah to be revealed. In the Old Testament, you were saved through faith in the coming Messiah. But now that we know that Jesus has been here, we are saved because we know who the Messiah is and he sent us out on mission. This is how we're saved through the blood of Jesus. We're covered with his work, not our own. This is, why, this is how we're called out on mission to share with the world. And so here's how I wanna end. I wanna take a moment and I wanna give you some time to talk to the Holy Spirit. And I want you to ask him, hey, what do you want me to do with this story? Maybe he's gonna remind you of something that you need to be reminded of. Maybe he is gonna remind you, no, 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 you're saved. Yes, you're sinful, but I have saved you. Maybe he wants to comfort you. Maybe he wants to call you back. Maybe he's gonna show you something that you're trying to do to make up for your sin and he's gonna say, I've already taken care of it. So I want you to ask him, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do with this? And then I want you to ask him, who do you want me to share this with? So I'm going to give you about 60 seconds. You take your time, you have a conversation with him, and then we'll wrap up and pray together.
Father, thank you uh, for this story. It's not, it's not a story, it's an account. Thank you for this account. Would you help us to resist the urge to write it off as a fairy tale because it's got a talking serpent? Would you help us to see that what is physical is temporary, what is spiritual is eternal? You are teaching us things here about how you pursue us. You are showing us things here about what it means to know you and to follow you. We have all sinned. We all try to cover up our sins. We all run away, but in your goodness, you come looking for us. Just like the father and the prodigal son, you... The, amazing father that Jesus in that story you said the father covered his son with his robe it's a picture of what God what you did for for Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3 you cover us with things that are not ours but they are yours would you confront our sin Holy Spirit would you help us to sit and abide and to be with you Jesus would you help us Jesus to realize in you and you alone we are saved from the penalty of our sins. In you and in you alone, we have hope. You came to broke the curse of death that we deserve. You entered into the world that you created and you've come to give us new life. And so we wanna join in with the angels that worship you. We wanna sing your praise. We wanna live your praise. We want other people to know you. So would you send us out of here on mission? But for now, Holy Spirit, would you move? And would you help us to lift our voices? to the King, to the Messiah who has come. In Jesus, in Jesus, you are the King that will return one day, hopefully soon, to restore everything. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us?